Well, Christmas has uh, certainly uh, been associated with light, and that is obvious to any who are in our culture because the moment the Thanksgiving turkey is cooling in the pan, people are lighting up their homes and their streets and their trees and just about everything else for the Christmas season. It's a season of light and people celebrate it with light, but too often they don't know why. And maybe it's just some tradition or something they've known from their childhood or something their parents did, but they don't really give a lot of thought into why we celebrate with light this season. Well, tonight or today, I should say, I want to take you to uh, the, the, we might call it the source text. We might call it the first a breaking of the light, or at least the first message of light, when it comes to this Christmas season, the one that is referred to by Matthew himself whenever he talks about the coming of Christ, and is found for us in Isaiah chapter 9. It is the prophecy of the coming of this light in all that it means. And really, it can't be understood in all of its beauty unless you kind of understand the context of a picture of darkness that, uh, that is laid out for us, not just in Isaiah here uh, in these few verses, but in the entirety of Isaiah 1 through 8. But it's summarized for us in the final two verses of chapter 8, where Isaiah writes this. He says of his people, he says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged And will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. I mean, this is uh, it's not surprising you read something like that and it just sort of is intuitive. We see it all the time. There is gloom, there is darkness, there is discontent, people are hungry, it implies that there's despair both economically as well as socially, and we might even say psychologically. And people are pictured here as sort of groping around and, and, and the idea is in their mind that this is someone else's fault, and so Isaiah tells us that during this time the people will speak with rebellious tones against their king, that is, against their government, and then eventually even against their God. They'll turn their face upward, and they'll speak against their maker. In all of the gloom and all the distress and all despair of their life, they'll be looking for answers, they'll be looking for someone to blame. And really, it's in the picture of this gloom and this despair and this darkness that we read the opening verse of Isaiah 9 when he says, There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. This is the announcement of the Christmas light. 
And I don't know if you think what you think about whenever you light up your Christmas tree or put your candles in your windows or candles on your mantle or whatever it might be. I don't know what you think about whenever you drive uh, down the street and see the, the lights hanging from, uh, from all of the buildings or even from the, uh, the, the power poles or whatever it is. When you go into the malls and you see lights everywhere, I'm not sure what you think about, but this is at its core the message of light. A message that a people who are trapped in gloom and darkness and anguish and despair have received a promise that that gloom and that despair and that anguish will be dispelled by a light. Now, to understand this light, you really have to understand that every you have to understand everything that Isaiah goes on to say from this point forward. He begins to talk to them about a series of reversals. He talks, for example, in verse 3, how God is going to give them population instead of desolation. He says to them that, he says, you have multiplied the nation. Now, this is all written against the backdrop from the first eight chapters of Isaiah, where it has been despair and desolation, and severe judgment. It opens up in chapter 1 with Israel being pictured as a little grass hut in the middle of a cucumber field, which, which is to say that they are just barely surviving. They are just barely on the outskirts of civilization. They have been reduced and decimated as a people and as a population. And over and over and over again, you see it in the first Eight chapters of Isaiah in chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 7. Over and over again, these pictures of desolation. Even in chapter 6, the well-known chapter of seeing the glory of God by Isaiah. You're told about how Israel, like a tree, has been chopped down to the stump. And all that remains is a remnant. In fact, that's all the promise that you get. As you go through the first eight chapters, that there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be a small amount of people. There's just going to be some handful that makes it through some small group who is making their way on. And then you come to chapter nine. And now no longer is it just a remnant. And no longer is it just a few. No longer is it just a stump that's surviving. Now all of a sudden. It's population, multiplied peoples. And not just that, he goes on to talk about not just the population, but the joy, the pleasure. He says in verse 3, you have increased their joy. It was gloom, it was contempt, it was being stripped of all of their glory and stability. Now God is going to increase their gladness. He compares it to the farmer at the harvest and the dividing of the spoil by the soldier, which is a complete reversal because all that you've read in Isaiah thus far is how their crops are going to be desolated and how they're going to be subject to marauding armies who plunder them over and over again like a wave, like a flood, he pictures. And then in verse 4, it's not just the population, it's not just the pleasures that are going to come, but he says there's going to be peace. The yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He's saying there's going to be real peace, just like there was real desolation. 
Just like there was real armies coming against you. Just like there was real uh, uh, cruelty. There's going to be real joy and there's going to be real peace. These aren't just, in other words, metaphorical yokes of burden and metaphorical rods of oppressors. He's saying Israel's judgment, though real and severe, uh, will be met by a restoration that is equally as real. The curses, historical realities, so will be the restoration. Historical realities to come for Israel. God says He's going to bring total peace. A total cessation of war. That's really what's pictured here. When He says that He's going to do this, and verse 5, the boot of every trampling warrior in the battle tumult... Every garment rolled in blood and burned as fuel for the fire. And, and you can kind of just take that as a representation of every instrument of war. Every one of them. Like he says back in chapter 2 when he says that all of the spears and all the swords are going to be pounded down into agricultural instruments. There's no more purpose for them once this peace is established. And people read that and they wonder, well... That is too fantastical. I mean, that's got to be some sort of figurative or metaphorical uh, sense. Well, no more than the, 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 the supernatural deliverance of the Lord at the battle of Midian. He references it there at the end of chapter, at the end of verse 4. He says he's going to do this just as he did on the day of Midian. You remember that story where Gideon took 300 soldiers and took them against 120,000 in another army and routed them and didn't lose a single soldier. He's saying, he's just just reminding them, as impossible as this may sound, God can do it. He can do it. The flawed and inconsistent approach to Scripture that would somehow want to read all of the severe judgments against Israel as historical realities, but then somehow deny the coming peace as something just figurative. God declares here His power, a power that's already been demonstrated in the flesh. They say, well, how exactly is God going to do all this? How is He going to bring all this? How's he going to accomplish all this? When? Well, that's what comes next as Isaiah introduces for us a powerful prince to replace all of Israel's incompetent kings. This is the light that Matthew saw coming. This is the light of Christmas. This is what was breaking through the darkness, rising over the horizon. He says, to us a child is born, To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the light that's breaking, the light that's going to to cut through all the gloom and the despair and everything else. This child who's coming, who he says will bear on his shoulders the government and all of the 
all of the necessary burdens that Israel has born because of her sin and because of her rebellion, he will take them upon himself. Not only that, he will establish this peace, this joy, this ever-growing population. He will establish the kingdom to facilitate all of that. See, when Isaiah looked ahead, what he saw was the coming of this king. He didn't realize it's going to be separated by thousands of years in two separate comings. He looked ahead and he saw the coming of a child who would be a king. He had no idea it would not take place in the same lifetime. And so what you read as you come to Isaiah 9, 6 is is sometimes what people call prophetic foreshortening. That is the idea that they're looking ahead at something that's separated by such a span. And in their scope, they're looking at it like a mountain range, seeing the peaks that are lying ahead and not realizing the vast valleys that separate them. This is the prophecy of the coming light. This is what we worship. This is what we celebrate. And it's the coming of a king to establish his kingdom. He's going to come and he's going to be born with all of these titles. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Because it's him who's going to usher in this peace. It's him who's going to bring the renewal and the restoration to a nation that had endured generation after generation of morally and politically weak, oppressive kings, kings that were marked more by their indulgence and more by their protection of their own self-interest and their own kingdom. In fact, Isaiah has recounted this over and over again. Back in chapter 3, he talked about how they crushed God's people and ground their faces into powder. This is what these oppressive leaders did. They burdened the people. Their governments weren't sources of shelter and covers of protection as God designs all governments to be. Proverbs 29.2 though, it says when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When a wicked man rules, people groan. And the Bible's always talked about a different kind of leader, a different kind of king. Proverbs 28, a ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor, but he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. Proverbs 29, if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. Proverbs 16, it is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. And Proverbs 20, steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. By steadfast love, his throne is upheld. And people have read those verses and they've heard those ideas for century after century. And people have always yearned to live under that kind of leadership and to live in that kind of a government and to live under those kinds of leaders, to live in that kind of a society. But now after century and century, millennia even, it is obvious to us, 
just as it should have been obvious to Israel, it will never happen by any human means. No human ruler will ever be that. Not King David, not King Solomon, no other king in Israel, no other king, no other president ever in this world. All of this makes Isaiah's opening statement about this prince amazing. Rather than establishing a government that is a burden and an oppressor to itself and a government that is an aggressor against all others, he'll remove all that. He will replace the worthless leaders who have traversed the earth and cost by their own self-indulgent lifestyles the lives, the freedom, the joy that all the people of this earth have yearned for. He'll establish a government that will bear the burden, take upon his own shoulders what has been borne by so many. That's what Isaiah 9, 6 is promising. It's a statement about what is coming in a day of righteousness. He will fulfill all those wonderful promises from Proverbs. He will be the righteous one in authority that causes people to rejoice. He will hate unjust gain. He will judge the poor with truth. He will abhor wicked acts. He will uphold loyalty and truth. He'll establish a kingdom of righteousness. In fact, Isaiah 9, 7 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He will, he will sit upon the throne of David and he will deliver all the promises of a truly righteous kingdom on earth. The problem with Israel and the problem with so many people is that they want that kind of a kingdom, but they don't want that kind of a king. They want a place where they can have freedom. They want a place where they're no longer under oppression. They want a place that's free from injustice. They want a place that's free from, you might say, unrighteousness. They want a place that's free from gloom and free from despair and free from all the ills and pains of life. They want the kingdom, but they don't want the king. Well, what Isaiah tells us here should change anyone's mind. Who would ever think that? Because he tells us about this king. And his wonderful nature. And exactly who he is. Who is coming. He does it with four titles. Four names. That speak to us about his glory. He begins first of all by calling him a wonderful counselor. The word is Pele. It's an interesting word. It literally means miraculous. It's, it refers to things that are impossible. That's the way it's used throughout the Old Testament. Wonderful. Not in the sense of being pleasant. Not in the sense of just uh, being a, a joy 
Not delightful counsel, but, but brilliant in the sense that it is supernatural. This will be his wonder. It will be a display of supernatural counsel. Counsel that is beyond human ability to give. All of this highlights the stark contrast between the ebbs and flows, between the, 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 the being tossed here and there by all the various experts and opinions of all the various leaders and governments that have come down the pike. Even Israel itself, Isaiah has outlined for us in the first eight chapters how they were constantly turning to outside sources of authority. Back in chapter 2, they were full in their courts of the king. They were full of, of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with foreigners to gain their influence. Or even in chapter 8, he talks about how they had reached the low point where they were inquiring after mediums and necromancers. They were, in other words, they were desperate for answers, these leaders. They had reached a point where they knew that they had no real answer in themselves, and so they were reaching out there for someone to tell them how to rectify all of their problems, how to straighten out the mess that they had made. Desperate for answers. But this king, when he comes, he won't have to resort to speculative fortune tellers, to shallow and superficial, even self-proclaimed experts for life or for government or for economics, or for whatever. And his isn't even just the accumulated years of learning that he just is able to experiment with. No, he comes and he has counsel, but it's divine. It's supernatural. It will reflect his very nature as God himself. His wisdom and his testimony, his counsel and his decisions will constantly give affirmation to who he is. We will watch his every move. We will read about his decisions and we will marvel at his glory as, we, as they unfold before our eyes every day. And we will proclaim him wonderful. It'll be a constant stream of display and testimony to his wisdom. A constant being taken up by all that he does before our eyes. In fact, over in chapter 11, if you flip over there, you can read uh, chapter 11 begins by talking about a shoot from the stump of Jesse that will come forth. And it says in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he pictures a scene, not some 
ethereal, heavenly scene, which is completely absent of any sort of problems, but a real scene on the face of the earth where problems still need to be adjudicated, where problems still need to be navigated. And he says, in the midst of all that, what we're going to see is this constant display of wisdom and insight and counsel that will cause us to glory every day as he judges not by what his eyes see, that is not even by the mere empirical evidence that's available to him and not even by his ears here, that is to say, not just by the historical evidence that's available to him, but he will judge with divine insight. Justice in every case and righteousness. I was uh, reading a sad story in Texas about a 16-year-old boy who had been given everything. I mean, he had no lack of anything in his life. Parents were extremely wealthy. And he takes off one night in his car as a 16-year-old with three times the legal alcohol limit and in his drunken stupor plows over Four people on the side of the road trying to repair their vehicle. Kills them all. His family, of course, goes out and hires a very high-powered attorney. They go through the trial. And at the end of the time, the judge declares that she's not going to put him in jail. That his problem is he's a victim. In fact, they labeled it, ironically, affluenza. He's a victim. He's too wealthy. He's been spoiled his whole life. And so we can't hold him responsible for these kinds of lies. I mean, who could blame a kid like that? And you hear something like that and you just, the the injustice of it grates against you. And it's just a picture of what's around us all the time. It's not just in our court system and it's not just in our government. It's within our corporations. It's within within our jobs, within our field. We see injustices all the time. People getting away with things they shouldn't. People being rewarded when they've done nothing. We see people all the time, all these things, and it just grieves our hearts. And what he's saying to us is there's coming a day when a king will reign on the earth and his judgments won't be like that. They will be just They will be true. Every decision will be a delight to our heart because it'll be right. It'll be wonderful. Not only that, he'll be known, secondly, as the mighty God. This is a second name that demonstrates really how he's going to bring about this peace. How a human ruler could do something like this. El Gibor is the name. You may recognize El. It's used frequently. Elohim, El Shaddai, El Elyon, used frequently in the names of God throughout the Old Testament. But Isaiah here combines it with Gibor, the mighty, God Almighty or mighty God. In fact, he uses the same combination, the same word over in chapter 10, when he says in verse 20, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, he He uses it in parallel with God's name, the Holy One of Israel. Used throughout the book of Isaiah, it's very indicative, very, uh, we might say, characteristic of Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel. And you'll see in 1020, he says, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, In truth, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to 
El Gibor, to mighty God. And if there is ever any question about who this child is, this verse should settle it. He isn't just any man, and he isn't just some emanation from, some, some, I should say, some product of God. He is God, this child. Shouldn't surprise us if you read through Isaiah already, you would know this because God's already revealed to Isaiah that the child's coming and his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. He'll be born of a virgin, he'll be born miraculously, not the product or the seed of man. He'll be given this miraculous birth as a sign that he's none other than God. Some people imagine that that was a complete mystery. That once you get to the New Testament, that idea had never been introduced. That's not true. It had been revealed to Isaiah. It had been revealed here in this chapter. It had been real, revealed back in chapter 7, even in chapter 8. We read other places, Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Christ himself used this verse to demonstrate the divinity of the coming Messiah. Micah 5.2 says, You, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That is to say, the one who's coming to you is a pre-existent one. He's using there the title that is characteristically applied to God, the ancient of days. Mighty God, the one who's going to come as a direct answer to all the weakness of men. And this explains to us why no one else could ever accomplish this. Why after, after all of the great leaders in Israel's history, all the wonderful supposed messianic figures. And you could begin even with righteous David, who in his own life failed and showed his weakness over and over again. Or Solomon in all of his glory who came after, but still wasn't this kind of leader, couldn't establish this kind of kingdom. You could go through the Maccabean revolts. You could, you could go on into the... Uh, uh, the revolts uh, with uh, 135 when they tried to overthrow the Romans again. You could go through all of those and all the supposed leaders who came along, who were promising great things for the nation of Israel and none of them could deliver. You could mark out all of the great leaders throughout all of history and all the wonderful things they did. And you look under the surface, and what you find is a man, flawed, weak. Past few weeks, we have watched a nation celebrate what they thought was its great statesman from the 20th century, Nelson Mandela. They talked about all the great things he did, and yet they couldn't talk about it without talking about his weaknesses. The people he personally abused, the people he killed. 
families that he destroyed. Even our greatest statesmen, they could never match this kind of person, this kind of man, because they're not God. But he is. And this is what will allow him to bring about this kind of peace. It will be his power. It will be his might. He is mighty. He is almighty. In fact, we just read from Isaiah 11 with righteousness, he'll judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. It says right after that, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he'll kill the wicked. In other words, he's not just going to be some sort of uh, dainty, uh, do-good leader. He's going to be one who comes with the real might and power of God to back up his rule. He will not need armies. He will not need wars. He has all power in himself to bring about all these things. This is what helps us to understand that what's being described here isn't some ethereal, supernatural Jerusalem. There are no enemies that need to be slayed in that heavenly city. No shattering of enemies to subdue. But what he's talking about here and in Isaiah 11 when he speaks about the peace back in verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 9, he's talking about his power to subdue on the earth all these enemies. This is the promise of this king, God Almighty in the flesh. There's a third name he gives for this light that's breaking forth. He calls him the Everlasting Father. And this, this is not hard for us to read and understand. We refer to God the Father all the time. And yet when you read this, you realize he's talking about the Son. You realize he's talking about the one that we always refer to as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And your mind is stretched to understand exactly Exactly how this could be. The eternal father. This is by God's design. An indication. Of his oneness. With the father. This is by God's design. An indication of his. Unique. Relationship within. The Godhead that he's one together with the father. As he says in John. Chapter 10. This is an indication as well of his supernatural care. Kings sometimes in the ancient world were referred to as fathers. It was an indication of their their shepherding, if you will. Their fatherly care over the nation. Their overseeing with love and affection the people that they are Leading. He is eternal in the sense that he's the same 
very one and the same with God himself. He's a father in the sense that he has the same kind of overseeing role, the same kind of patriarchal care for us. This is really astonishing in both of these terms, the eternal part and his pre-existence, which as we read in Micah 5, 2, has already indicated there how he has, uh, he's the one who's coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days, talking about his pre-existence and his, and his oneness together with God the Father himself. John, of course, will pick this up. John chapter 1. He'll tell us that the Word was in the beginning with God and the Word was God. And he says that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Talking about Christ there. And he he gives us a peek into this mystery that somehow the Word was there in, in the sense that there was a relationship between two personalities. It was with God. And yet he was there in the sense of essence. He was one with God. He was God, John says. There you have the eternality. You have the preexistence of Christ. There you have the essence. You have the oneness together with the Father. And then he says, this word became flesh and dwelt among us. In some ways, that's equally as difficult to understand because flesh is almost in direct contrast to God. We're told in Scripture, God is spirit. Flesh flesh is needy. Flesh is dependent. God is without need. God is independent. Flesh, it seems, is temporal. God is eternal. And in this incredible display of mystery that we celebrate at Christmas, This light who comes to one day be the ruler of this earth. He comes in the flesh. And yet he's none other than God, the eternal. And then the fourth name he gives us is that he'll be called the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. And you come full circle. Isaiah rounds out this list of names By telling us, ultimately, this is the one who's going to bring all the peace that he's spoken of up to this point. So endowed with divine counsel, so endowed with divine power, so much divine nature. He will be the prince of peace. A real peace. Not just some spiritual peace. Not just some sense of serenity in your soul. Not some superficial peace that was spoken about by false prophets throughout Israel's history. Not some promised political peace that never delivers. Not some song that they chant over and over again, but is vacant of any real hope. This is real peace. But it's predicated, while it's outward and real, it's predicated on a different work. A peace that happens internally. You see, because because before he establishes any of this, he has to establish peace between men and God. The Bible teaches that men are at enmity with God. 
They're like the ones that we read about in Isaiah, Isaiah 8. They're looking around and they're dis, dissatisfied with their life. And some of them even turn and blame the Lord for their own miseries. And wonder why God has abandoned them. Well, he says that there's coming this king. He's going to establish this kingdom. But he's going to do it, first of all, by working in the hearts of of the people of Israel. We don't have time to look there, but you go on and you read later on in the Old Testament, and it talks about a, a work that God does in people's hearts where He takes their old heart of stone, hardened and recalcitrant against God and against His Word, and He gives them a heart of flesh, that is to say, receptive, moldable, sensitive to the Lord. And He goes on and He establishes this peace But it's a peace that begins by new hearts and new minds and new lives that are established in every person in this kingdom. That's how the kingdom begins. In fact, Luke chapter 2 that we read earlier, when it talks about the, the shepherds out watching their flocks, And the angels come to them and they declare the birth of this child. They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. That is to say, before you'll ever be a participant in this kingdom of peace that he's coming, you're going to have to have peace with God. You're going to have to find a way for God to be pleased with you. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look over at Luke Chapter 1, this was the rejoicing of Zechariah, the priest, when he, when he prophesies not only about his own son, John the Baptist, but about this coming king, this light. He says in Luke 1, 67, his father, that is John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear. And he says in verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. You see, Zacharias understood that this kingdom was going to be a reality. But he understood it would never be a reality until a reality of God's work had taken place in everyone's hearts. So that he not only reigned and eradicated all of Israel's enemies, but he reigned in a kingdom permeated by righteous people. As the scripture says in Luke, excuse me, Isaiah 11, that the, the, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. In other words, there will be so much knowledge of the Lord because everyone will belong in their hearts to Him. This is the the reality of this light. The reality of this light is that it is coming to break through the darkness of this world. 
But before that really happens, the light comes and it must come to break through the darkness of your heart. It must penetrate. Not just the misery and the anguish and all the gloom and despair. It must penetrate the rebellion and the sin and all of the hardness against God. If you want to be a part of this kingdom, if you want to be under this rule, if you want to be resurrected to life and to participation in all of this glory, it won't happen. It won't happen if Christ Himself is not already reigning on the heart, on the throne of your heart. So our challenge this morning as you celebrate Christmas, as you think ahead to this glorious light, as you in all of your yearning and longing that you have for this kind of world, that you understand that the very thing that has kept it back so far is sinful hearts like yours. And you understand that before you will ever be a participant in this kingdom, you have to first love the king. You have to love his counsel, his wisdom, his power, his glory. You have to love his peace. And it comes to those who trust him. Our challenge to you this morning is before we, before we end this day, that you wouldn't go through Christmas with all these lights around you without knowing the light of Christ. That you would go on in the gloom and the despair and all the anguish, hoping for something, groping in the darkness, complaining against your government, complaining against God, complaining against other people, without realizing where the answer lies. It lies in this child. Our challenge to you today is that you'd repent, that you'd believe, that you'd trust Christ, and that you'd be one of His. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning for the picture of this light. We're so thankful as we celebrate in our homes, we light our trees, we light our candles. We know what the light is. We know that it has only first dawned in the coming of our Savior for the sake of dying on the cross. But we know that it is yet to grow brighter in the day of His return. So Lord, give us that heart. Help us to celebrate this Christmas. Help us to celebrate the light as it has always been revealed. And to praise this majestic King. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.